Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. So there's a really interesting organization called the Breakthrough Institute, which is in San Francisco. And I've been reading their material for a while. Uh, They are one of the more philosophical think tanks out there, if not uh, the most, CIP excluded. And they have some really interesting analyses of modern environmentalists. They generally consider themselves environmentalists, and many of them are from the political left. Uh, And yet they identify very deep problems in modern environmentalism, uh, particularly an anti-human strain, an anti-technology strain, and uh, they have some really fascinating stuff. There's a book called Love Your Monsters uh, by Ted Nordhaus and Michael Schellenberger, who are the two principals there. Uh, That's definitely worth uh, reading. And in general, if you go to thebreakthrough.org, they've got a lot of really interesting stuff. And one of the interesting things I saw lately was an article called Harmonic Destruction, How Greens Justify Bioenergy's Assault on Nature. This is by an author named Will Boisvert. And the article is, is fascinating just in terms of how it chronicles what is the reality of modern so-called renewable energy, and particularly how so much of that reality involves something very dubious and in a sense very primitive which is chopping down lots and lots and lots of trees and uh, using other forms of, of biomass, including crops, clearing off land, clearing cropland uh, for food that was for food and, and devoting it to um, energy crops in order to compensate for the fact that the popular, publicly popular so-called renewable energy, solar and wind, are fundamentally dilute and intermittent and thus they are expensive and unreliable and so insofar as there are all these mandates they're being increasingly made up by again chopping down trees uh, which there's nothing inherently wrong with that at all Uh, but that is not that is exactly the problem of energy that coal overcame that people were just chopping down all their forests they were running out of the so-called renewable wood um, you know more quickly than they could produce it and the fact that we're going back to that is revealing. So anyway, I uh, found Boisvert's article fascinating, so I decided uh, to see if he'd come on the show, and, and uh, thankfully he has. So we'll have Will Boisvert on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Joining us now is Will Boisvert, author of When Renewables Destroy Nature, uh, for Breakthrough Journal, the recent uh, article. Will, welcome to Power Hour. Thanks, Alex. Nice to be here. All right. Now, we're going to link to this article on the site. I highly recommend it. Um, there's so much to it, but uh, let me start out just by asking, how did how did you get into this topic? Well, you know, it, it started with an idea that I had uh, several years ago 
uh, it was kind of funny. I I went to a place in Michigan, which is where I grew up, which is called Fort Michilimackinac. It's kind of a tourist site now, but it, it it's the site of an old frontier settlement from the 18th century. It was a fur trading post, and um, they now they're doing all sorts of archaeological excavations on it, and they restored it. And it's a very nice little frontier fort. And when I went there, that one of the things that the tour guides told us was that um, Fort Michilimackinac actually experienced an energy crisis in the 18th century because uh, they were totally dependent on the wood growing around them, uh, both for their building materials and for their energy, for their firewood. And eventually they cut down so much of it that they denuded the landscape around them for several miles. And it became a kind of a crisis when they had to keep going further and further and further just to get their firewood. And this was a tiny settlement. It was only at, at peak fur trading season, maybe a few hundred souls. So what that, what that really brought home to me is that the reliance on biomass as energy is really fraught with a lot of problems, both for the environment and for sustainability. And of course, that was a crisis that was happening um, all over Europe at the same time because of uh, demands for firewood and charcoal for metallurgy. Uh, Europe was starting to denude its forests, and that became a, a, even more of a crisis going into the into the 19th century. What's held that crisis was the turn to fossil fuels because the West, North America and Europe, uh, started using coal and oil and natural gas for their energy supplies. They were able to actually uh, restore a lot of their forests. So in that sense, it, that was actually an advance for sustainability, although eventually it, it, it brought its own sustainability problems uh, in its wake. What's happening now, though, is that um, the renewable energy program that's being um, put forth by most of the mainstream green organizations is in many respects a throwback to that older system of biomass energy. Burning biomass is a, is a, is a central pillar of the green energy program. It's not talked about very much. All you see in the headlines is wind farms and solar panels. That's the ideal face of renewable energy. But that's not the whole face. In fact, uh, the project as a whole relies on these forms of very antiquated and very destructive uh, biomass energy, simply burning trees and brush for electricity production and heat and turning a lot of our farmland over to energy crops, which means that we crowd out uh, food production which has dire effects both on the environment, it crowds out um, wildlife habitat, and on food production, which drives up food prices. And that has a very uh, very bad consequence for, for people in the third world as well. So I felt it was just very important to take a close look at this aspect of the renewable energy program and to really ask whether it's sustainable or not. And if it's not, as a lot of people uh, believe, uh, why are we driven to uh, rely on it? And why are Greens both pushing it and upset by the consequences? In the article, you talk a lot about a certain uh, philosophy of 
living in harmony with nature through this uh, so-called bioenergy. And I want to discuss that, but I also want to discuss what is what is the modern origin of renewability, which is really a sort of just repetition as an ideal, um, although we see with with living things in particular, you can't repeat it very long. I mean, oil is renewable, but as soon as you want more than repeats, then you have problems and the same thing with everyone else. Why is this the ideal when, as you point out later in the article, particularly nuclear power um, has this incredible energy density that you can just get from a place where it's doing nothing? Where does this whole ideal come from? I think it's really a philosophical ideal. Um, I think the, the modern green consciousness, uh, the philosophical underpinnings of it, um, is about a world in which um, we're, we're very much living in symbiosis with the natural environment. Uh, you know, the whole environmental movement started, first of all, as, um, as a reaction against industrialization. There was the notion that factories and all of the... Um, uh, all of the products they produce and all of the raw materials that they use were destroying the environment. And it was the job of the environmental movement to shield nature from that, to carve out places uh, and erect fences that prevented industry from encroaching on nature. And that the more one thinks along those lines, the the more one gets into the notion that the problem is not just with shielding nature, but with something intrinsic in industrial civilization itself, and that you have to completely refound industrial civilization on uh, an ecological vision, so that instead of pillaging nature, instead of taking things from nature, um, it simply subsists in nature's normal flows of growing things, using them, recycling them, turning them back to nature so that they can regrow. And there's this belief that we have to make civilization act that way and that, and that we have to, in particular with biomass energy, to take energy from the environment in such a way that we can put it back into the environment by, for example, um, uh, taking our power from trees that we then regrow, or from energy crops that we burn, they give off carbon dioxide, but then that's just reabsorbed by the next generation of energy crops. So it, it's definitely a philosophical uh, belief that we have to recycle things, we have to be in tune with nature. The more we subsist on nature, the more we're bounded by natural rhythms, uh, the more sustainable our civilization is. So if, if we take technology as the modification of nature for human needs as its, as its essence, then where, where do they theoretically uh, draw the line? Because many of them will avowedly say they're, they're anti-technology, particularly in the 70s. It was more congenial for them to say they're against technology as such. But if, if the ideal, I mean, because we had a quote-unquote sustainable way of life before we started being very successful, but in effect, in having industrialization, we're demanding a level of success far in security, far and away above all of the other species. Um, if the ideal is to harmonize ourselves with species that survive at much lower rates and which with much less quality of life and much more, much more being outcompeted than we're willing to tolerate, where are they drawing that line, or should we just go back to the Pleistocene? 
Well, uh, you've really hit on on one of the um, one of the uh, paradoxes of, of the green movement. They don't really know where to draw that line. Uh, there there are certainly prominent sectors of the green movement that do, in a sense, want to go back to the Pleistocene. Um, maybe not living in caves, but they, they do envision a radically reduced human population, essentially a die-off, although I'm, I'm sure they don't want to kill everybody, but they do want human population to, to plummet drastically so that it's more in line with, with natural carrying capacities. And they do very much think in terms of a reduced standard of living. Uh, not, you know, not um, uh, what they view as a profligate waste of resources and energy. So that means things like colder houses, smaller houses. Um, it means um, a population that simply doesn't travel very much because it can't afford the fuel to do that. Um, a population that um, just doesn't buy very much stuff and uh, recycles everything it uses and does, in a very important sense, lead a more penurious lifestyle. Now, that's not the whole green movement. Um, the more prominent green movement right now is the one that realizes that that vision of penury and retrenchment and limits is not politically popular and that they probably can't um, sell that. So that's the segment of the green movement that's that's the vanguard of the renewable energy movement. They understand that they have to find some way to produce energy abundantly, and they want to do that through a suite of technologies that they think of as sustainable, uh, mainly headlined by wind and solar. But part of what I'm trying to point out in this article is that there's a contradict, uh, I'm sorry, a contradiction there that they can't finesse because wind and solar won't do it, and they're going to have to fall back on supplies of energy like biomass that have very troubling implications for uh, environmental sustainability in the same way that, that um, fossil fuels do in their view. I find it instructive that you classified the, you know, the more mainstream or the one in the vanguard uh, in part taking a position because it's, it's politically palatable not necessarily that they fundamentally disagree with the ideal of not impacting nature and, and suffering and reducing population accordingly. And in that vein, I think the point you just made is relevant uh, and that they, I want to get to next, which is that the technologies that they advocate and that they claim to support as a means of reducing global warming, say, are not things like nuclear, which can actually scale at a reasonable cost. They are solar and wind. And, and you give some fascinating examples, including one in Germany, uh, just about how much inherent difficulty there is with these intermittent and dilute technologies. Could you talk about the state of those? Yeah, uh, that's, uh, that's really the main conundrum of the, the whole alternative energy movement. Uh, wind and solar cannot do it by themselves, and they, can't, they, they simply can't shoulder the burden of, of a low-carbon uh, energy system. Germany, what, what we found in Germany is that um, wind and solar technologies are, are incredibly unreliable. If you simply look at the uh, raw statistics on how much they're producing at any given point in time, it's just terrible. They have capacity factors on the order of maybe 18% for wind and 10% and for solar. 
the capacity factor is the amount of energy that they actually do produce um, divided by what they would produce if they were running at full power all the time. What that basically means is that most of the time they're producing just a tiny, tiny fraction of what they're supposed to be producing going by, by the nameplate. What, what that uh, translates into um, in terms of their reliability is, is just um, a disastrous shortfall very regularly. Uh, they regularly go for a week at a time producing maybe 5% or less of the electricity that they're supposed to produce. And in Germany, that usually happens in the dead of winter. So without fossil fuels and biomass to back them up, uh, Germany would simply shut down for weeks on end during wintertime. Not enough electricity to, to even keep the lights on, let alone keep the economy running. So there, there's simply no way that um, it's feasible in most of the world to, to contemplate running a modern economy on wind and solar. They're just too unreliable. And that's why uh, these very large-scale, um, you know, very uh, environmentally um, overweening biomass schemes are, are really intrinsic to all of the um, forecasts for 80 or 100 percent uh, renewables energy systems. They really need that um, that dispatchable backup power to run the uh, electricity system. Otherwise, uh, it'll just break down if it's only wind and solar. Um, yeah, I think it's just so important that it is that it is almost never presented that way. That is, you don't hear, say, President Obama talk about the wonders of renewable energy and then point to massive amounts of forest being clear-cut you know, to feed wood uh, into a power plant. Um, you know, he talks, he shows uh, allegedly beautiful windmills um, and solar panels. I'm, so there, there's at least two elements to the, to the biomass. We, uh, I'd say fiasco. I won't put that into your mouth. But one is, is the, just, the just destroying all of this land needlessly or, or harvesting it needlessly, including displacing food. But the other is just the inefficiency of it. Can you talk about the economic inefficiency of using tons of diesel and all of these other things to try to farm your energy? Yeah, it, it, it's very economically inefficient. Um, well, it, there, there's a debate about that, about how economically efficient it can be. Um, all sorts of studies of actually existing um, bio, biofuel programs like corn ethanol in the United States, uh, biodiesel that's grown in Europe, uh, show that it has to be pretty heavily subsidized and... Um, doesn't really stand up very well to uh, market competition with fossil fuels. Now, there's a big debate about whether technology can get around that because there's a, a whole trend now towards what they call Gen 2 bioenergy, which is uh, things like purposely grown energy crops um, and what they call cellulosic ethanol, which is ethanol that's derived from the whole plant, not just the, the starchy seed kernels. Um, there's, uh, there's hopes that that can be made actually economically viable, although the whole cellulosic ethanol business has not gotten off the ground, even though there have been very stern mandates to try to force it to get off the ground 
it's just not economically feasible yet. So there, there's always the hope on the horizon, as there is with every renewable technology, that the next breakthrough, the next uh, technological revolution, will finally make it economically feasible. But so far, that has not happened. I mean, I, I think if we were forced to subsist on it, we might hope that. I, I think in many ways they don't. And one, one thought that I have on this is that if, if we look at least at agriculture, one of the ways in which you are able to accomplish things more efficiently, let's say you want to protect against disease or insert some sort of vitamin or uh, minimize your use of pesticides, you can genetically engineer things. So I might imagine that genetic, genetically engineered bio crops that are designed by man specifically for energy purposes if, versus you know, designed to be eaten, that I have to imagine would be your best shot. What is their are they? I can't imagine they're embracing that, though, given their opposition to it in food. No, you're right about that. Actually, there have been proposals to bioengineer better energy crops, uh, like switchgrass and, and trees, slash pine and poplar, uh, to make them more productive on uh, cheaper inputs. And that very reliably uh, arouses ferocious green resistance. Uh, lawsuits, uh, protests, um, so that's, again, one of the conundrums that the Green Movement is hung up on. Um, it's um, the way it anathematizes certain technologies that actually have a chance to, to accomplish the, the goals of a, of a sustainable energy system uh, constantly trips them up. So, but they keep pushing on with these renewable mandates nonetheless. Yes, they do. Uh, well, it's again. This is there's been a schizophrenic response politically in the green movement to the whole biomass program. Uh, most of the mainstream green move, green organizations are against it now. Uh, in fact, they're against the current version of biomass. Uh, the version of biomass where you just clear cut timber and feed that into boilers or power plants, they're against that. Uh, corn ethanol, they're very strongly against. Uh, growing, uh, making biodiesel out of uh, oil crops, they're against that. Uh, but um, when you talk about Gen 2 biomass, the cellulosic ethanol, uh, the supposedly super-efficient energy crops that can be made super efficient without resorting to genetic modification. They're very strongly in favor of that. Um, places like the Natural Resources Defense Council, the Union of Concerned Scientists, uh, Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, they all tend to revile the actually existing Gen 1 biomass, uh, but they embrace the Gen 2 biomass. And they do that kind of schizophrenically. Uh, because there's no indication that the Gen 2 biomass is going to be any better than the Gen 1 biomass. It's still going to require huge tracts of land, a lot of wood cutting, a lot of cutting of whole trees, a lot of farmland displaced, a lot of wildlife habitat plowed under. It's going to require all of that. Uh, but because they can hold out certain visionary hopes for it, they're still uh, signing on to that more advanced version. Um, 
And as far as I can see, there's no rationale for that. It's if you if you don't like Gen one biomass, you are not going to like Gen two biomass. It's going to be even worse at a, at a much larger scale. I mean, one one thing I really enjoyed about this article, and I enjoy about many breakthrough articles, is that almost everyone associated with it has. I'd say a 10x familiarity with the history of the environmentalist movement than just about anyone, including most members of the environmentalist movement. And ha having studied it quite a bit myself, I mean, if I look at historically what sorts of energies do they support, Gen 2 fits in perfectly because A, it seems bound at least superficially to their ideological constraints of low impact, and B, it doesn't exist. Right. It doesn't work. Uh, That's an excellent point. Uh, I I think one of the things they like to say around breakthrough is that, um, how do they put it, you, that the energy supply that everyone loves is the one that doesn't exist yet. Um, because as soon as one actually does come into existence, it, it inevitably has trade-offs and drawbacks that, that makes it lose its visionary luster. And um, the Green Movement has a real problem striking that balance between um, between different kinds of trade-offs and different kinds of risks and benefits, it tends to fixate on both particular visionary ideals and also particular risks that it demonizes out of all proportions. And so it has a real problem coming up with a realistic energy plan. So then, then uh, to, I'm curious to hear your speculation on this. Let's say, let's say that you get solar and wind just more economic on their own terms in terms of just the, the amount of resources to build the stuff, period, and then you have some sort of uh, miracle uh, storage or capacitor system so that you actually, let's just see, even say you didn't need uh, biomass, just fantasizing, I would bet all my money that they would find a lot of ways to oppose that once it existed. And if you agree at all with that, what kinds of objections do you think they would have to this massive industrial scale solar and wind and storage system? Well, uh, you, you, can already, you can already see a lot of objections that they have to the existing um, scaling up of it. Uh, even Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's a, you know, a vehement environmentalist, uh, was very active in opposing the Cape Wind project of building offshore wind farms within viewing distance of his Hyannisport compound. And a lot of environmentalists are very fiercely resisting uh, both the building of, um, of, wind pan, uh, of wind turbines and, so, and desert solar farms um, and the associated infrastructure with it, the, the huge power lines, all of that stuff. So there's already a lot of environmentalist pushback against uh, the current rather small scaling up of wind and solar. Uh, if you could make it work um, perfectly, uh, they would still have problems with it. There are problems with um, the wind turbines uh, killing raptors. And there are problems with concentrating solar farms um, broiling raptors. That's an, a new issue that's cropped up with the Ivanpah uh, solar, concentrating solar facility. It turns out that a lot of birds that are flying through there get caught in the concentrated solar rays and get fried. Uh, so that's a new um, problem that Greens are probably going to fixate on, uh, maybe with, with uh, some justification. 
I I tend to worry somewhat, although not too much, about what these very extensive um, intermittent generators are going to do to wildlife. And even more, I'm worried about just what they're going to do to the landscape. Uh, people don't understand just how pervasive they will be. Every horizon will be lined with these 40-story wind turbines. They're going to be everywhere. If, if this vision succeeds, our children will not know what a natural landscape looks like. And I think that will um, stimulate a lot of NIMBY pushback. Because again, the, the, the root of the environmental movement was revulsion against industry, against industrial encroachments on the landscape. And um, the renewable energy movement, if it succeeds, if it scales up, will do that on a gigantic scale that's unprecedented. Uh, their goal is really to turn the entire landscape into a giant power generator. Um, you know, turbines everywhere, solar panels everywhere, uh, the coastlines lined with tidal and, and uh, uh, tidal generators, um, just industrial power production literally everywhere so that there's no longer any identifiably wild landscape. And, and environmentalists and greens are going to are really going to be taken aback by that once they see where it's heading. Um, how do you, when you mention every landscaper, let's even say most landscapes, how do you arrive at that? Because often you'll hear, I don't, I forget the, all the variants of this, but oh, we'll only take an area the size of Rhode Island, as if, as if an industrial project that was literally the size of Rhode Island wouldn't be the most massive thing ever. But even leaving that aside, we it's it's acted as if oh, this will just be a small you know, a little parcel in an otherwise empty field. Well, that's true of certain kinds of uh, intermittents. Um, it, it's true that wind turbines, when you, when you look at just the footprint on the ground, are not that massive, although it gets a lot more massive when you start talking about access roads and power lines and so forth. Uh, but their impingement on the aesthetics of the landscape is huge because these things are 40 stories high. They can be seen everywhere. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of the environmental movement is aesthetic. It's about the way nature looks. Um, and that's going to generate a lot of pushback. And, and in fact, it already has. There's no question that environmentalists are very upset by what wind turbines are doing to the landscape, just the look of the landscape. And also, the, the, the way of phrasing that, that we only need a, um, a, um, a plot of land that's the size of Rhode Island or Kansas or Texas or, or whatever the number is, is, is wrong because you can't just take Rhode Island and turn it into your one wind generator. The wind has to be everywhere because it has to be dispersed to try to take the edge off some of the, the unreliability. If you have no wind in Rhode Island, then you're going to have to get your wind from Nebraska. If there's no wind in Nebraska, you'll have to get it from Texas or from Alabama or from Michigan or from somewhere. So it's, it's not going to be on a, on a sequestered scale. It's going to be everywhere. It's, it's going to be on a continental scale so that the land everywhere is going to be uh, harnessed for its energy producing potential. And also, because, uh, because these, um, 
these technologies are so unproductive and with such low capacity factors, you have to overbuild them to an immense extent, and they also face diminishing returns so that uh, after a while, the overbuilds just become crazy if you really want to contemplate uh, using them for to, to totally eradicate fossil fuel production. So it, it's a big project, and it's going to be everywhere. And even though now it's not everywhere, it's still getting pushback from environmentalists. I want to go back to the, the subject of the article, the core subject, which is just this um, uh, biomass phenomenon. Uh, can you put some numbers on it in terms of, uh, you use the example of Germany a lot, so we might as well focus on that, in terms of how much of their energy they're getting from biomass and then how much physical biomass or land area or whatever that is taking? Yeah, that's just remarkable. Um, right now they're getting about a quarter of their renewable electricity from biomass, and that's simply trees cut down and fed into the boilers. Uh, and that that alone, along with heat production, they, they also have a lot of what they call uh, co-firing, co CHP plants, uh, that also rely a lot on um, on fossil. I'm sorry, on biomass uh, from wood, just to produce heat along with power, and that's taking up half of their timber harvest, half of all the wood that's cut in industry in, in Germany every year, just goes into the boilers, either to heat or to generate electricity. It's an enormous amount, and yet it generates not very much. It generates maybe, um, what would it be, maybe 5 or 6% of their electricity, but half their timber harvest is going for it. There's also the biofuels issue in, in Germany. They're growing a lot of corn now to um, to use to generate biogas and also oil crops to generate biodiesel. Currently, they're using 17% of their arable land for those energy crops, and that's forecast to just about double by 2020, so they're going to be using one-third of their arable land, one-third of their farmland, to grow these energy crops for a tiny little trickle of their, their motor fuel. So it's just immense. They're, they're using so much land that could be used either for food or for wildlife habitat or forest to uh, produce these very small amounts of energy. I, I find it interesting that if, if let's say, uh, people who project catastrophic global warming and who project in particular agricultural impacts and we're going to have diminished crop yields and yet this has come up with as a solution to deliberately destroy a massive percentage of your crop yields for a very inefficient method of producing energy that also generates quite a bit of CO2. Yeah, that that's really the, the worst irony of the whole thing. Um, yeah, if you, if you follow the rosy predictions of, of what they're going to do with, with biomass, it's just appalling the amount of land it's going to use. I think there's a, a study from the U.S. Uh, Department of Energy uh, that envisions um, every year using uh, 125,000 square miles of farmland for for new energy crops, uh, which is just immense. A, a strip of land 125 miles wide and a thousand miles long, which could be used to grow food, uh, but instead is going to be used to grow not too much of a percentage of our energy supply. Uh, you can grow a lot of food on that, 
and that food can be used to feed people and drive down food prices, which we are really going to need in a, in a world that has a swelling population. Um, another thing you mentioned in the article, which is actually in the title, is just the amount of what we can call nature or wilderness that's cut down. And, and often when I engage Greenpeace people, they'll talk about, oh, these forests are cut down and these forests are cut down. And I notice it's not usually in the U.S. or other com countries that use fossil fuels and nuclear. It's usually in some faraway place that's not industrialized. How much of this biomass, or I guess, let me ask more broadly, what is the origin of most of that when you hear about all these trees being cut down? What, what's the usual uh, motivation for it? Well, uh, that's a bit of a tricky issue. Um, it's when we're, It depends on which kind of bioenergy you're talking about. If you're talking about biofuels, that is, motor fuels, um, there's a lot of there's a huge problem in Southeast Asia of growing uh, palm oil, uh, which is then distilled into biodiesel, and there's a huge amount of clear cutting of uh, tropical forests in those areas to turn them into palm oil plantations. Um, so Greenpeace has been very apoplectic about that, uh, with some justification. Um, as far but there there are other forms of biomass, namely woody biomass which are going to impact um, actually the United States more than a lot of other places. Uh, the Southeast United States is gearing up to be a major exporter of wood pellets to Europe. Uh, and that's given a new lease on life to um, forestry, but it's forestry conceived of basically as, as tree plantations that are optimized for rapid harvesting cycles. So slash pine and um, poplar is another big crop. They're basically grown on these six to 12 year cycles and then essentially clear cut, basically mown, and then they start another uh, cycle. So it's uh, what that does is, is take forests that could be utilized as diverse forests for wildlife, wildlife habitat and turn them into monocrop tree plantations. That's happening in the United States, that's happening in Canada, that's happening in Eastern Europe to a large extent. Um, and it's really, it, it, it's, it's not exactly deforestation, but it's a, it's a radical change in the way we uh, conceive of these forests to make them much more industrialized and regimented, much less biodiverse, uh, much less useful as wildlife habitat. And that's, again, something that greens do not like. They want nature to be nature. They want it to be wild. Uh, it's not going to be that way under the biofuels regime. It's going to be industrialized. Yeah, again, I'm just the, I mean, I'd say, I mean, maybe they don't want, maybe they want nature to be nature, but it really seems like they don't want man to be man in terms of using his intelligence to use parts of nature that other parts of nature can't and don't need to use. And that's what you mentioned at the end of the article, particularly nuclear power. How do you, because there you're taking what's a useless rock and it has incredible density so you can operate cities and you can operate it in very, very small uh, pieces of space, which you would think the environmentalists would like. How do you explain their continuing opposition to that despite so many facts about its relative safety compared to other technologies? 
Well, that, to my mind, is really the, the, the greatest tragedy of the Green Movement, that they turned their back on this energy source, which, to my mind, is the most environmentally benign at all, of all. It has by far the lowest land footprint, uh, very low carbon, no, no pollution, no emissions. Uh, and it makes, as you point out, uh, it makes use of a raw material that just doesn't have any other useful purposes, um, and that can, is so dense that you don't have to disrupt nature to any appreciable extent to harvest it. Um, but the Greens have not just turned their back on it, but demonized it. Um, and there's a that topic itself is worth many a book to write. Um, books about um, social psychology, books about the history of the anti-nuclear movement and how that fit into the, the whole development of the new left. Um, a lot of it is just it, it, it's a it, it's a really fascinating example of the uh, the growth of of a social mythology because that's that's really how it started. It has understandable roots in um, World War II and the atomic bombings in Japan, which were horrendous uh, events that rightly gave everyone pause. And it has roots in the Cold War when everyone believed that nuclear fission was the one thing that could actually destroy the world. That's what we all grew up thinking. That's what you and I grew up thinking. Um, and by association, that was uh, that that dread, which was well justified, was transferred to this other technology that also relies on nuclear fission, uh, the peaceful use of it for power production. And it has its roots in um, the anti-nuclear testing campaign of the 1950s and 60s. There was a big push then to get open-air testing and then all testing of nuclear weapons banned. And the impetus for that was um, the belief that that would slow and stop the nuclear arms race, um, a worthy goal. But the way it proceeded was to try to convince people that every trace of nuclear material that went into the atmosphere from these tests was a dire threat to our health. And part of that was to simply demonize even tiny, tiny traces of radiation and radioactivity. And naturally, that spills over into contexts where, where nuclear power plants emit very tiny amounts of radioactivity, but because of that ideological imperative to demonize those tiny amounts, it's then the power source itself is demonized. Um, and there's the there's there are so many other dimensions to this. Nuclear power, because it was the um, offspring of the military industrial complex, is a symbol of the military industrial complex. Everything that that the new left has been fighting for so many decades is sort of bound up in that in that one technology. So it's ideologically a very potent topic, and and it brings up all sorts of um, deep emotional and political um, resonances that it's very, very hard for people to see around in a rational way. Um, 
so when I was reading this article, it's just it, I really enjoyed just how thorough a job it did at looking at the benefits and many uh, risks and costs of this kind of bioenergy. One thing that's been frustrating in in researching different kinds of energy is how little I can find on the hazards and risks of both the mining portion and the disposal portion uh, of solar and wind. Uh, even though uh, certainly on the mining side, it's massive and often done in places that don't respect individual rights. Uh, how much have you studied the state of, of the full impacts of those technologies? I, I haven't studied uh, that to, to a large extent. Um, I've, I've read accounts of, um, of what's going on in that respect in China because China is taking over the entire solar industry and to an increasing extent, the, the wind manufacturing industry as well. So um, basically, to see what's going on in terms of the environmental impacts of those technologies, you have to look at China. And in China, uh, environmental laws are incredibly lax. And there are many reports that the mining and manufacturing of solar uh, panels in particular is incredibly dirty. Uh, that the mines are just wastelands of pollution and toxicity and that um, whole regions of the countryside are really suffering. Uh, you know, there are protests from villagers that have had their water supplies poisoned, um, all sorts of uh, uh, occupational toxicity in the workplace where these things are manufactured. So, yeah, that's another aspect of the whole life cycle impact issues that are just not being looked at very closely by the left when it when it uh, celebrates these these particular technologies again it's all a problem of of people taking a very blinkered view they don't look at the whole picture at the whole pattern of trade-offs that have to be made for these various energy technologies they they fixate either on idealized visions or on demonized uh, risks without taking a measured view of the whole uh, universe of impacts that, that all these technologies have. Yeah, uh, that's, that's an incredible summary. Uh, one more question which is raised by the very last uh, paragraph, which there's, there's also a great essay on this issue of, of ecological economics or ecosystem services and um, and Love Your Monsters, the Breakthrough Institute book, which I think everyone should read. Um, can you just, I know the article is not about that, but I'm just curious to hear your take. What what exactly is the eco ecological services or ecosystem services article? Because there's this famous article by this guy, Costanza, not the Seinfeld one, that values that at 33 trillion, and Bill McKibben uses this figure a lot. What What is this argument and what what is it used to argue against? Well, I, I haven't looked into that too much, but, but my impression is that um, it's the notion that society itself runs on the, the services that the ecosystem provides us. The ecosystem generates our oxygen. It uh, breaks down our waste products, uh, you know, the, the product of our sewage and the, the fertilizer that we that we dump into fields, all of these things, it breaks that down and turns it back into usable resources. Uh, it grows our wood, it um, purifies our water so that we can drink it. So the notion is that we should we should value all of these um, uh, all of these services in in monetary terms, and then we can get 
uh, a proper accounting of what the right policy should be. If we, if we suddenly start pricing these externalities, these positive externalities that we get from a clean environment, then we can then we can make the economy in turn value them properly and shift towards a more sustainable uh, system. And that's I'm not entirely opposed to that uh, to that approach because it is a sort of rationalization of how we look at environmental policy. Uh, but there are all sorts of you know complexities in how you actually do that technically. And in in my view, it, it's sort of getting away from what green consciousness has traditionally been about, which is valuing nature for its own sake rather than for its utilitarian ends to human purposes. Um, you, you can't entirely get away from that because we do rely on, on the environment and we can't sever ourselves from it. But uh, the, the notion that um, our economy has to be tightly intertwined with the environment and in fact limited by it and sort of defined by it I think has some dangers to it because it makes us too dependent on the environment to do what we need to do, whereas we should be thinking in terms of satisfying our economic needs out of technologies that to some extent distance ourselves from the environment because when we interact with the environment, we are so powerful and often so heedless of the way we do that that we can't help damaging it in the process. And so it, in my opinion, it's better that we dig under the ground to get uranium than to look to an ecosystem to supply us with energy to do that service for us. We shouldn't, we shouldn't let the ecosystem do that service for us. We should do that service for ourselves and let the ecosystem uh, take a break. All right. Well, that, that raises so many issues, but we're, we're out of time. Uh, I want to thank you, Will. And where can, we'll, we'll link to the article, of course, but where can people learn more about you and your work? Um, that's a good question. Um, I'm sort of all over the place right now. I'm trying to write more about these issues and get them published in more places. Um, I've written some for the New York Observer uh, about urban farming and about the Indian Point nuclear power plant. Um, and I hope to be writing more for the Breakthrough Institute, and I've done some stuff for dissent as well. I'm actually a leftist myself, and it's my, it's my goal to get Greens and leftists to think more rationally about uh, the policies that they're following. Well, that's the fascination of, of Breakthrough, because I mean, I'm you know, on the laissez-faire side, but Breakthrough is really the only left sort of organization, although I, obviously people's views vary a lot, but it's, it's really the only organization that's rejecting the new left uh, dogma on these on these issues and is actually much more like the old left. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, all right, well, we on this page uh, on your article, it links to a lot of your other stuff, so if we ever have you on again, maybe you'll have more means of self-promotion, but uh, this will give them plenty of stuff to go on. Yeah. All right, thanks for being on the show. Well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Thanks again to Will Boisvert for coming on the show. If you notice during that interview, um, I mean, those who have listened to the show know my views about how to think about environment, how I think about every aspect of the, of the environment from a human 
perspective. So when I talk about, I don't really talk about the environment, I talk about our environment, and I think of the entire ecosystem from a value perspective in relation to human beings, whether that's you know, the value we can get from a piece of wood or the value we can get from contemplating a landscape. But it's not that the landscape is an end in itself. And with a lot of the people at Breakthrough, I think they have a they have a different view. But on this, um, just given that those distinctions are, I think, are well known to listeners of this program, I thought it was really important to focus uh, on just the the crucial factual information and analysis of the green movement uh, that Will had to offer and that Breakthrough has to offer. So I think at some point in the future, it'd be really interesting to have. Uh, public discussions with them if they're interested um, about exactly exactly what is the proper alternative to the modern environmentalist way of thinking about environmental issues and then including how that would apply to something like greenhouse gases which they they consider a serious problem and I I don't um, uh, but anyway I, th- I think it's just great that that there is a philosophical organization who's taking a serious look at what the green movement is what it's after, what its fundamental beliefs are, and then take seriously that we need to analyze and see the implications and see the validity or lack of validity of those uh, beliefs. So as I'm working on my own book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, which you should definitely pre-order at Amazon, uh, it's definitely much appreciated, and I've learned a lot from their work uh, that will certainly make its way into the book in one way or another. So thanks again to Will Boisvert and the Breakthrough Institute. And with that, we'll wrap up. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Make sure to check us out on facebook.com slash the pursuit of energy, facebook.com slash I love fossil fuels, facebook.com slash I heart nuclear. Sometimes I forget to mention that one. And you can follow me on Twitter at at Alex Epstein. Uh, Again, make sure to get the book moral case for fossil fuels get it on amazon it's getting a lot of pre-orders very happy about that want to see want to see more of those and of course as i mentioned every week make sure to get on our mailing list which you can just get on very easily by going to industrialprogress.com all right next week we will be back with another great topic another great guest until then i'm alex epstein this has been power hour power hour Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.